This morning, uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, if you didn't figure that out from what Mela just read, it's in First Peter. And so we're going to start working our way through uh, this letter of First Peter. And uh, as we do, uh, the last couple years we did, uh, if you've been with us, we worked through the Gospels. And we did it a little differently than we normally do here at Church of the Apostles. Because what, what I did is I took all four of the Gospels and we looked at it chronologically. And so we kind of skipped around. We might be in John for a few weeks and then Mark and then Luke and then Matthew, those four Gospels that we were kind of over. What we normally do at Church of the Apostles, and I say normally the last 15 years, uh, that I've been here and been preaching is that we usually just go straight through books of the Bible. And the reason that we pick a book of the Bible and we go straight through it is we try to do what we call exegetical preaching. Uh, it's a fancy word based on a Greek word called exegesis, which just means to explain or just to, to make clear what the passage says. And so when we work through a book of the Bible and we go straight through, it helps us with context and flow of thought and what's happening. And each week it connects to what we saw before. And in a lot of ways, that makes it easier to be to do good exegesis. And, and that's important because we don't want to just, uh, I don't want to stand here and give ideas that I have. I don't want this to be like, here's thoughts that I was thinking on and then presenting to you, because God's word is far better than anything I can tell you. And so we want to let God's word stand over us in all things. And so, uh, for example, in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And we believe that. And so going straight through a book of the Bible, what will happen, and we'll, we'll see this at different times in First Peter, is we're going to read things and we're going to get to places that maybe if I was just choosing, I might skip over. Go, oh, that's kind of hard, and what about that? And uh, But when we're going straight through, we're going to look at all of it because we believe all of it is God's word and all of it is profitable. And so we're going to spend time together going through First Peter. And so as we start into this book, I'm going to just tell you, uh, it's only five chapters, but I've allotted right now the way I've planned it out. I think it's going to be four and a half or five months. And so probably 18 to 20 weeks. And you go, well, it's only five chapters. Um, I'm just going to tell you from the beginning, today's sermon is on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the greeting. And you go, okay, a sermon on the greeting alone, that seems like a lot. And then if that's not enough, I got to Thursday and I broke it into two parts. So really, this week and next week is on the first two verses. Maybe three verses next week. But I want to tell you why, because when we get into this, and even just in his greeting here, Peter says some great, big, huge, incredibly important things. And they're really, really important. And there's great big theological ideas that are really important for us to understand who God is and the way he's working and all of it is important. And so in some of these, now don't mishear me, we're not going to be in First Peter for eight years. It's not going to be one sermon each week on one verse. But sometimes we're going to slow down because some of this is so big and so important that it says that we need to give it that time. And so we're going to work our way through this letter together. And so the way I want us to do it, the way we're going to start today is first, I just want us to ask the question of what's the occasion, who's writing, what's happening, what's going on here with this letter. Then secondly, he's going to lay out just in his greeting, just the first thing he says, there's four massive things that tell us about who we are and how that's the case, who we are and how that's the case. And the four big things that are there, we're really only going to take the first two today because they're so big. And they're so massive, and we'll get to the second half of it next week. But then the last thing I want us to do is we look at the first half of that, the first of those two of those four things. I want us just to consider why it's so important and what it means for us today. So let's just start 
with what is the occasion, what's happening, who's writing, what's going on. And you get an idea right here in the very first verse. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so right there from the very first words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in these places. But let's just start with Peter for a second. If you've been with us the last two years as we were going through the Gospels, we talked about Peter a lot. Because Peter is in the Gospels a lot because he is one of Jesus' disciples or followers, one of his closest followers. It's the same Peter that we see in those Gospels that's writing this letter. And what we know about Peter is he was one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, I think one of the common misconceptions is we think Jesus had 12 disciples and that was it. It's not the case. He had a whole bunch of disciples and a lot of people following him and a lot of people coming behind him. But then he did have 12 that he chose that he kind of went deeper with and spent time with. And Peter was one of those 12. And so he was one of that kind of inner circle of Jesus. But then one of the things I kept saying as we were going through the gospels is that Peter is not only one of the 12, he's also one of the three. And what I mean by that is Jesus had a lot of disciples and crowds everywhere. And then he chose these 12 to himself. But then even within the 12, there was Peter, James, and John that he often said, you three come with me. And he would take them aside and he would invite them into certain things. And so it's one of the reasons we say here at the Church of the Apostles, when we talk about discipleship, growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life, that we say deeper with fewer, right? That you share your life more deeply with smaller circles, because that's the way we saw Jesus making disciples. He had the crowds and then he had the 12 and then he had the three. And so that's the way we do that because we're seeking to follow Jesus and we think he knows best. But you see that with Peter. And so he was right there with Jesus in so many things. And we're actually going to see this in this letter. There's going to be times where he talks about what he saw Jesus doing and the way he was operating and what it looks like. And so we have this eyewitness of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus. Apostle, when I say apostle, I say big A apostle in this sense that he was an eyewitness to these things. And then he is sent forth with this message to tell who Jesus is and what he's done. And so Peter writes this letter. And Peter's been an instrumental part of the early church after Jesus' death and resurrection and then ascension. He sends the disciples. He sends those that are following him. He says, go make disciples of all nations. And Peter does that. And if you've read the book of Acts, the book of Acts takes place from about 30 AD to early 60s AD. And Peter features very prominently in that as it tells the spread of the church and the way it's going out. Well, when he writes this letter... It's now about 62, 63 AD. And we have some uh, extra biblical sources that help us with this. We actually have internal sources in this book that help place this. But Peter's writing from Rome in the early 60s, and he's writing to the church. And so when he's writing to the church here, and he says elect exiles, which we're going to talk about in just a second, of the dispersion, and then he gives those five cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That those five that he's talking about are Roman provinces around the area. And so when he's saying, I'm writing to you elect exiles of the dispersion that have been dispersed to these different cities. What this was, and it's often the case in the early church, is they would write this letter and then they would send it kind of a circular circular letter around to these different churches. And that was the, the normal trade route between the Roman provinces and it would be sent out and it would go to one city and they would take it to the church and they would meet together and they would read Peter's letter. 
And they'd say, listen, we've got this word from God that he's given us through the apostle Peter and Peter, and they would read it together. And then they would take it and they'd make a copy of it and copy it. And then they'd send it on to the next town and it would make its way through the church. And so that's who's writing and who they're writing to. But there's one more important thing that you need to know about the occasion and what was happening here. Right. So as he's writing this and you start to see this very quickly, I actually see it for the first time in verse six. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. And so he goes into this and he starts to talk about this. And he says this a lot in the book. And what we know from history is that this time the church was under great persecution. There was a lot of hardship on these people. A lot of difficulties, a lot of hard things that they're facing, lots of suffering, economic loss, people losing their lives over their faith, some really, really difficult things. And so Peter writes to encourage the early church that's struggling, that's going through hard things. And so I just want to tell you, as we step into first Peter, that he is writing to people that are suffering. He's writing to people that are having very difficult things. And I know if we go around the room, there's suffering here. In our body and the people that you know and the things that you're dealing with. And the things that they were dealing with, quite honestly, were probably far more difficult in the day-to-day than what we were dealing with. Not, not to diminish where you're suffering or where you're struggling. But then he writes to encourage them. And so I just want to remind you as we spend time in this book together, although the things that we're facing may be different, what he's saying to us is vitally, vitally relevant to where we are. And so that's kind of the occasion of what's happening. Peter writing to the early church that's struggling and suffering to encourage them. But then he begins to say a lot of really big important things in what really amounts to just his greeting. It's so rich and so full of big ideas that even in just his greeting to them, he says some really important things. And so look at what he says there. He says, to those who are elect exiles... Of the dispersion, and then he has those cities. You can almost think of that as parenthetical. I'm writing to you who are here. But then he says, your elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. And so you see what he's saying. You are elect or chosen exiles because of the foreknowledge of God, because of the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so those are the four things that I want us to think about. That you're an elect exile from the foreknowledge of God or because the foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus. And we're going to take really just the first two today because they're such big ideas and they're so important. And so as we begin with that, just start with what he's saying when he calls them elect exiles. And I'll just kind of pull back the curtain a little bit when we think about uh, exegetical preaching. And understanding God's word and spending time in it. I want to remind you that this is a real person writing to real people. God's inspired it and he's behind this and it's his word to us. But he's using real people writing to real people in a real time. And he's using words that are important but are words in their language and the way to see it. And so if we want to get to the very heart of what he's saying, it's important that we think about the the history that we talk about or or think about the grammar. We think about the words that are used, that God's inspired these words. And it's important for us to get to those things to really understand what's being said here. 
And so, uh, brilliantly named, people say, well, that's, we practice grammatical historical method of Bible study, right? That, that we, we study the grammar and the words and those things that are there. And so here, when he says to you who are elect, elect exiles, that word elect that he uses quite literally means chosen. I'm writing to you who are chosen, who are elect by God, that are called by God. And if you start to look at the way that that word's used, and we can go back and we can look how it's used in the New Testament and how it's used around that time. It's used 23 times in the New Testament, and it means chosen. It means those that know God, that are chosen out of the world to have a special relationship with him, to know him. And so he's saying, I'm writing to you that know God, that are elect exiles. And so I want you just to think about what he's saying when he calls them elect. You are chosen by God. And then he says, according or because of the foreknowledge of the father through the sanctification of the spirit to obedience to Jesus. And he gives you kind of that conception that you've come to faith and you've come to know God because of what God's done and his foreknowledge. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. This foreknowledge through the spirit moving and opening your eyes to see Jesus and then becoming obedient to him and the sprinkling of his blood. And he says, that's why you're chosen. That's why you're an elect exile. And he gives you the reason why that's the case. And I want you just to think about that for a second. He's saying you're chosen and you're you're called out of the world and you have this relationship with God because of what God has done for you in your life. Right Through the work of the Father and the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus bringing you into this relationship. And then he says this thing about being sprinkled with blood and the sprinkling of his blood. And if you're not familiar with that... You read that with today, 2024 eyes, and you read that, and he talks about the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, you're like, what? What is he talking about? Now, if you've grown up around the church, that maybe is like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. I've heard this before, right? Washed in the blood of the lamb, right? You start using your, your Christianese and the language that you know from the Bible, and we say those things. But what is he talking about when he says sprinkled with Jesus' blood? That you're now his people. You're chosen. And it ends with a sprinkling with Jesus's blood. And what he's talking about is Jesus laying down his life for us. Jesus dying for us. Jesus shedding his blood on our behalf. And he's pointing back to using some language from the Old Testament about sacrifices and animals blood and all this kind of stuff, which is so foreign to us today. And so I want you just to consider this for just a second because it's really important. Why is that the case? Why would he use that that language of sprinkling with his blood? And why is it important that Jesus' blood is even part of the equation? Just ask this question. If you claim to be a believer and you're following Christ and someone asks you that question, why did Jesus have to die? How do you answer that? It's a really important question. And it's okay to ask that question. Right? I've had people ask me this for years. They go, okay, so I, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I'm not perfect. I've not done everything that God has called me to do. I get that, but why can't God just forgive? What's the deal with Jesus dying? What's the deal with all this blood? Like, why does the Bible talk about this? Why is there sprinkling with blood and all these things? And people go, can't he just forgive? And the answer is because God is perfect in every way. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly other. And so part of what that means is that he's perfect in his mercy. He's perfect in his patience. He's perfect in his love, but he's also perfect in his justice. 
And so that means that sin has to be dealt with or God ceases to be God. So there has to be payment made. God can't just say, oh, I just forgive all of it and it's no big deal. We'll just sweep it under the rug. He would cease to be God because then he is not just. But in his perfect justice and in his perfect mercy, Jesus comes and says, I will take your place and do for you what you haven't done. I live the life. Jesus lives the life that we haven't lived. And then he dies the death that we deserve. And he sheds his blood on our behalf and God accepts him in our place. And in so doing, God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. And they hold together in that. And it's so important that we understand that. And so what Peter is saying is that you're chosen by God. You're his people. You're chosen out of the world. You're his elect because of the foreknowledge of the father through the sanctification of the spirit because of what Jesus has done for you. And it's important that we see that that is holds all holds together in what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to come back to that second part about Jesus's blood and, and what he's done for us in obedience to him next week. But we have to see that this week to understand how we're elect or how we're called or how we're his out of the world. And it's through what Jesus has done. But then the second half of what he says there, he, he says, you're elect or chosen, but then he calls us exiles. To the elect exiles, right? I mean, notice the language he uses. To those who are elect or chosen exiles. And part of it, you could say, well, of course, exiles because of the dispersion. And they're all in these different cities. And they're not in the town they grew up in. And so they're sojourners or exiles in the world. And that's partially true for some of the people he's writing to. Right? Remember, they're under the Roman occupation and people have been taken out of their homes and they've been dispersed in different places. And so some of them, that's true. In some ways, that's just very literally. Uh, Quinn was telling me, Quinn, my youngest son, told me this week that there's a boy in his class that's family is from Ukraine. And he's in Quinn's class now because his family has moved here because of what is happening in Ukraine. And so they're exiles. They're sojourners. They're not in their home country because of what's happening. And so that's partially true. But I think Peter means something more than that. And it's a theme that the Bible talks about a lot. And in fact, you see it in the very next things that he says. So if you look at verse 3 and verse 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what's he saying? He's saying right now in Jesus, as his elect that have come to know and to love him, you have an inheritance that is unfading, that is imperishable, and it is being kept by and for you through the power of God. And it is there for you. And so what the Bible starts to talk about is even right now in your relationship with God, you are a citizen of heaven. That you know God and he is now in you. And what is coming in fullness that you have is yours. And so the Bible talks that way. And I think when he says that you are the chosen exiles or the elect exiles, what he's pointing us to is that this isn't our home here. Not in its current form. Our home is the fullness of God's glory that is coming. And that is who we are. And the Bible talks that way. It talks that way, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, kind of famous for the roll call of the faithful. Maybe you've heard that before. 
By faith, Abraham did this. By faith. And it talks about all these people throughout the Old Testament that were faithful. And they trusted God and they were pointing ahead. And then in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, and it says, And these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They didn't see it come to fruition in their lifetime, but they were looking ahead as exiles that their home was truly in heaven with God and the fullness of what he created us to be. And so when he says here that you are elect exiles, he's writing to those that are in Christ, that are chosen by God, that are now living temporarily in this broken world, but know that they have the citizenship and the fullness of what is coming for them in Jesus. It's a lot in two words, is it not? (laughs) Elect exiles. And that's who he's writing to. Those of you who are elect exiles. But let me remind you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, that is you. You are an elect exile. You are chosen to be his people. And you have a home and an inheritance and this thing that is coming that is so glorious and beautiful that we get to look forward to. And it's important as he says that, and we'll get back to this, but he's starting this way because when you understand that, the things that come at you in this life suddenly can take their proper place. Because we know the ends. And it's a really important point. So that's the first part here, to the elect exiles. But then the second part is he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're about to go real deep, real fast. Right? We started this series and we're now 10 minutes into it and we're going straight to the foreknowledge of the Father because it's the second thing that he says. And so verse 1, he says that you're chosen. Verse 2, he says you're chosen because of the foreknowledge of the Father. We go, okay, well what does that mean? How do we get to that? And this is where grammar becomes important. It's where the words that are used become important. To really get to the understanding of what he's saying. And so grammatically the, the sentence, his, his greeting sets up with, you are the elect exiles because of the foreknowledge of the Father. You are chosen because of God's foreknowledge, the Father's foreknowledge. They go, well, what does that mean, his foreknowledge? And what often happens, and, and this, not pointing the finger at anybody, this is me. I remember this idea being introduced to me when I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. It was in a Christian school and this idea of foreknowledge and election and these things. And I immediately went to my mind, of course, what's the big deal? God knows what I'm going to do. That's what that means, right? Foreknowledge. He just knows what I'm going to choose. And so we're elect because he knew what I was going to do. And we almost always go right to that. But when we do that, and I didn't know this for a long time. And I didn't ever study those words and I didn't really think too deeply about it. I just kind of put it out of my mind. But when we do that, we're not actually talking about foreknowledge the way the Bible talks about foreknowledge. Foreknowledge, if we think of it as God just knows what we're going to do and he just sees all things, which he does. It's not untrue. But what we're doing is we're taking the biblical word for foreknowledge and we're making it foreseeing. And those are not the same thing. We've missed what the Bible actually teaches on this, and we've made it something else. And so if we say he's just foreseeing, the conception kind of goes like this, that you're chosen 
because you were receptive to the gospel and God looked down and saw ahead that you would be receptive to the gospel and then he sees that and then he chooses you based on your choice. But that's foreseeing, that's not foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is that you were receptive to the gospel because you were chosen by God. That's something different. And it's a big, huge idea. And we're starting to get to the mind of God and the way he works. And I'm going to tell you, all of this doesn't resolve nice and neatly. There's parts of it that are going to come, I hope, clear for you, and you see them clearly, but then it's still going to raise some other questions. Well, how does that work? And what does that look like? But what we want to do is we want to stand under God's word. And we want to let God's word stand over us and be obedient to what he tells us. God is sovereign and we are not. He tells us how it is and we come underneath him. And so I want us to think about that together this morning as we think about it. So real quickly, I'm going to give you just several things that the Bible says that you need to wrestle with. And I'm going to give you a bunch of different verses. I'm going to read them to you. You can write them down and go back. And I would encourage you to go back and to read them and read them in context and think about what's being said. But I think what the Bible is showing us is that you're receptive to the gospel because you were chosen. Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and they're preaching the gospel and they're proclaiming boldly who God is and what he's done and people are coming to faith. And then it says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard the word of God, they were glad and they were glorified and they glorified God. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. You hear that? And as many who were is ordained to eternal life believed. Right? Those that were chosen by God were receptive to the gospel. And he says that. Those that were ordained believed. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Jesus is talking. He says, all things have been handed over to me by, by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Do you hear what he says? Jesus says, no one knows the Father, right? No one knows except those that have been handed over to me by my Father, right? And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so it starts with God's choice, and those are the ones that are coming to faith and what that looks like. John chapter 6, verse 37 to 39. Again, Jesus talking. If you remember when we were going through the Gospels, John 6 is a heated discussion with the religious leaders of the day and they're frustrated with Jesus and he's kind of dividing the crowd and he says some really direct things and he says, verse 37 of John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so Jesus says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And I lose none. And the father will raise them up on the last day. Go, okay. He's saying some pretty serious, direct things about the the sovereign election of God and the way that he's working. John chapter 10, similar situation to John chapter 6. Again, the religious leaders are upset with him, kind of pressing in. They're, They're asking him some very direct questions. 
Picking up in verse 24 of John chapter 10, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And he says, you don't understand who I am because you're not part of my sheep and you don't see this. And all that the father give me will come to me. You go, whoa, some serious things, right? Those are Jesus's words. Give you one more Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight actually uses the word foreknowledge or foreknew. It says for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those he called, he also justified and those he justified whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what we often refer to Romans chapter 8 is the unbreakable chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. It doesn't say those whom he foreknew, some he predestined and some he called. It says those whom he foreknew, he predestined and those whom he predestined, he called and those whom he called, he justified and those whom he justified, he glorified. And he puts those parameters on it, that God is sovereign over every step of that along the way. Now, you can still go, okay. But couldn't that just be that God knows what you're going to do and then he works back and then he says that? You can go back and read all those passages and go, well, maybe Jesus is really saying he just saw down the corridor of time. But if you do that, then you have to go back and really look at what foreknow means and what the word to know means in the Bible. The Bible means more than what we often mean in our English language. It means something different. It means something more than that. Foreknow is an intimate knowledge of love and action. It's not just seeing what's going on in a, in a general sense. I'll give you a couple of examples. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is talking about those that will stand before him and how they'll be divided out in the judgment. And he says in Matthew chapter 7, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And he's going to say to some, I never knew you. And so that doesn't mean that he goes, I have no idea who you are. I've never seen you before. I've never observed what you were doing. What that word means is I didn't know you in an intimate relationship. I didn't know you in this way. Depart from me. Give you another example. Jeremiah chapter one. Jeremiah, God is speaking to Jeremiah, his chosen prophet that's going to go and proclaim these things to the nations. And he says to Jeremiah, he says, before I formed you in your mother's womb. So understand what he's saying. Before you were even conceived, right? That's what he says. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, before you were conceived, I knew you. And so he's not talking about the things that he did or the things that he observed. He says, I knew you. I set my affections on you before you were even conceived. I'll give you one other one. Genesis chapter four. 
in verse 1. It says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore him a son. It doesn't mean he generally knows who Eve is, right? Something else happened there that she then conceived and bore a son. And so when you start to look at what that word means and what foreknowledge means and the way it means to know in the Bible, what it means is for loving. That God set his affections in his foreknowledge that you are chosen because he set his affection on you before eternity passed. Right? Before anything was created. Right? I, I could give you a whole bunch more for the sake of time. I'm not giving you all of them. We could go and look where it says he chose you before the foundations of the world. He set his affections on you. And so when we go, well, what does foreknowledge means? It means an intimate knowledge of love and affection. It's not just foreseeing. It means foreloved. And so hear this. This is really important. We're not talking about recognition of an existence that's already there. That's foreseeing. What we're talking about is the shaping of an existence through his love. That he foreloved you. That he set his affections on you. And so what the Bible teaches is that you are elect or chosen exile because of the foreknowledge of God. Because he set his forelove on you. That you would then put your faith in Jesus through the sanctification of the spirit and the sprinkling with his blood. And that's how you became a believer. You love God because he first chose you. Now, <laughs> see, nice and easy, all done. <laughs> I think that's what the Bible teaches. And it says it over and over and over and over again. But we hear that and we talk about election and predestination and God's choosing and all those things. And all of a sudden we go, that's not fair, is it? We have all sorts of objections that arise and we go, well, wait a second. How does that work? What does that mean? Does that mean none of our choices matter? No, it's not what it means. What often happens is we're, we're, we're presented with this and then we immediately jump to things that the Bible doesn't say. And so we want to hold it in balance to what the Bible does say. And so to those objections, what do we do with this? What does it mean for us today? The first thing I want to say is if you have objections or you feel that, or you go, I don't think that's fair. I don't like the way that feels. That doesn't seem right. I want to start with this. God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, he is free to do what he chooses. God is sovereign. And I'm going to tell you right now, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm there with you. In our flesh, in the sinfulness of our understanding that wants me to be the center of the world, we hate God's sovereignty. That's what sin is. I want to be the master of my own fate. I'm in charge. It's about me and what I do. And God goes, no, God is in charge. He is sovereign over all things. And that's hard for us at different times. But the second thing that you need to see with that is that God is not only sovereign, but he's also good. And you can trust him. Even when we come up against things that we go, I don't know how that works. How does it work that God says we have real choices with real consequences, yet he's sovereign over all things? I hate to say the, it's the cop out. It's a mystery. I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know how those hold perfectly together. But I do know that God is sovereign over all things and I know that he's good. And I know when I get pushed to the limits of my understanding that I can trust him. 
in his infinite wisdom, he holds those things together. And so we have real choices with real consequences. But God is sovereign over all things. And so one of the objections that follows closely, and maybe you feel this, you hear this, and if you've put your faith in Jesus, it can be a wonderful thing that you go, God loved me before the foundations of the world and had nothing to do with my doing. And that is a glorious truth. But then we go, that's not fair. What about my neighbor? Or maybe it's closer than that. It's your, your loved one or your kids or your spouse. You go, what about them? What if they don't have this? Does that mean they're not chosen? And we immediately go to those things and we start to ask those questions and for good reason. But here's the part that we don't know. So don't go to things that the Bible doesn't say. You and I do not know who's elect. We don't know who's chosen and we don't know how God chooses. We don't know. And so you go, well, wait a second. What about that person? And the answer is God may be calling them to himself. And our job in that is to operate in the way that he tells us, which he says, go make disciples, go proclaim my goodness and my mercy and my faithfulness. You tell those things and I will take care of the rest. And you trust me in that. And that is so hard. Because my flesh doesn't like God's sovereignty. I want it to be my doing. And I want it to be, I want to make this happen. And God goes, no, that's not how it works. And I know that's difficult. And it's hard to wrestle with that and some of the implications of that. But I'll tell you, for me, it's become a wonderful comfort in my life that I can trust that God is sovereign over all things. If salvation is ultimately up to me figuring it out, I would have never figured it out. And if it's ultimately up to me to hold on to it, I'm definitely going to lose it. For sure. And so when I hear what it says here, that you are elect, you are chosen by God because of the foreknowledge of the Father, I go, oh, thank you, God. I'm lost without that. I'm a mess. There's no way. But then the flip side, I just want to encourage you, the glory of this all when you start to wrestle with what it means. You know, notice here that he says this, that you're chosen, the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That you'd have the peace of God overwhelming you because of this fact of who you are, that you are chosen by God and it's what he's doing and the way that he's worked. And so I want you to think about as we start this book that's going to talk about suffering and hardships and the difficulties of life. That Peter's writing to a people that are facing death and economic disaster and real persecution, even being put to death for their faith and things of that nature. And he's starting right at the beginning saying the reason that you know Jesus died for you right now is because from all eternity past, God had a plan for you on his, in, on your life. And he set his affections on you and that's why you've come to know him. I go, oh, that's really good news. And I read what he says here and then I read Jesus' words. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. 
And that's a wonderful reminder of security and the fullness of what is coming because of who Jesus is and who God is and what he's done for us. And so if you look at the the positive of that and you see that the fullness of the glory of that is that God's going to finish what he started. And that he is the one at work and he is the one doing that. But then I'd also say to you, if you think of it in the positive sense and you look at it, you can go, well, wait a second. What about this person? Are they chosen or not? We don't know. It's not for us to know. It's not for us to decide. But I choose to think of that like this. You go, well, what about that person? And I go, what I know is that no one, no matter how hardened they may seem on the outside, is beyond the reach of God. No one. I heard it said a long time ago, a friend who's a pastor said, uh, when God prompts me to, pay, to pray for somebody, all of a sudden my neighbor, my friend, my loved one, I start to pray for him. He said, I feel like God tapping me on the shoulder and go, I'm about to do something over here and I want you to be part of it. Yeah, that God is the one calling and he is the one doing, but he chooses to use us in that and he chooses to work through means and we don't know exactly how that looks or how that will be, but he's the one that's going to do it and we get to be part of it. And then the last part and we'll end here this morning is this, when we understand the doctrine of election and that it's all God's doing and it's his choosing, this is where I come out on all of this. It leaves me with humility and with praise and thankfulness. The end. Why would God choose me? I have no idea. It doesn't make sense to me. But what I know is it wasn't something good. It wasn't something I did. It was by his sovereign grace that he chose me. That he allowed me to see who he is. And so you go, well, why did you become? Because God loves me. Because he did this work. And he chose me. And that's it. And so whenever pride starts to well up, and sometimes people will take this doctrine and so twist it and be like, well, I'm chosen. Well, then you don't understand the doctrine of election if you're saying that. Right? If you're puffing out your chest and going, look at me. No, no, no. What we're saying is that God chose by his grace the end. And that leaves me with a humility and a thankfulness that I have nowhere to go but to thank him for it. Because it wasn't me. It wasn't my doing. It wasn't my intellect. It wasn't my understanding. It was God's grace, the end. And that's really important for us to understand as we go forward and we continue to look at the way he works. And so I'm going to stop there. If you have not heard this before, if this is a new idea and you go, wait a second, let's continue to talk about it. No one gets introduced to the doctrine of election and some of the things the Bible says and go, ah, oh, of course, perfect. Got it. If you did, that's awesome. Come tell me. I'd like to meet you if that was your, your cycle in your life. But God is good and he is sovereign and we can trust him in all things. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious 